there does seem to be one possible continuity in a potential Trump administration, which is that he likes authoritarian strongmen. And maybe in a weird way, that provides the basis for a better relationship with Netanyahu. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm David Rothkopf, CEO and editor, and you're listening to The ER. Today, I'm joined by FP columnist Corey Shockey, a research fellow at the Hoover Institution, where she focuses on military history. Also with us is Yochi Driesen, managing editor of FP News and author of The Invisible Front. Finally, we have David Sanger, national security correspondent for The New York Times and author of Confront and Conceal, Obama's Secret Wars and Surprising Use of American Power. Recently, in our tiny podcast studio, high above Washington's DuPont Circle, we had the following conversation. Guys, not so long ago, 18,000 people gathered for the APAC meeting in Washington uh, to talk about um, America's relationship with Israel. Um, needless to say, these meetings always bring out the utmost in politicization, uh, a criticism of the influence of this group, um, and uh, uh, debates about U.S. policy in the region. Uh, I'd like to start out with, uh, you know, a question. If Donald Trump weren't actually speaking at the APAC meeting, would anybody care about this? Is this issue high on people's radar right now? Is it newsworthy without the U.S. presidential election? I think certainly not as newsworthy as it was last year when there was so much concern about the Iran deal and whether people from the White House would get booed. I mean, it's fascinating how much the APAC narrative has shifted in a year, right? Like last year, every story was APAC's lost its punch, it's lost its muscle, muscle, it can't stop the Iran deal, it's this increasingly irrelevant organization. Now it's Donald Trump's got to go and got to repair things with the pro-Israel lobby and with the Jews, so APAC is the place to go. And it's taken on, again, this sort of outsized image, I think, as this massively powerful organization one year after it was seen as this declining, increasingly less relevant organization. Well, I think, uh, you know, Yoki made a good point, and I think the fact that APAC was not able to defeat uh, the Iran deal and the fact that Prime Minister Netanyahu came to the APAC meeting, spoke to the APAC meeting, of course spoke to Congress, and still was not able to stop the deal, tells you that it's not as powerful as it once was. But it certainly is a key constituency for Secretary Clinton, uh, and it's one to whom um, Donald Trump had to go prove uh, that he is both familiar with the issues, undo the damage from his comment that he would be neutral uh, in uh, as a mediator in the Arab-Israeli talks, uh, a phrase not all that far from some that, that some American negotiators have have taken at various moments, but he forgot the line, we're neutral, but we're still the country that will completely back up Israel and make sure that uh, it is uh, its existence is never threatened. Um, so I think in many ways it's more important to Secretary Clinton to consolidate the, the vote. It's interesting, the only presidential candidate who did not show up at AIPAC was the only Jewish presidential candidate, Bernie Sanders. Why do you think that is? Well, I, I guess he had better things to go do. Uh, he's been—actually, uh, he was down at the border uh, in Arizona uh, at that time. 
uh, foreign policy is not his uh, strongest suit. And I think that he concluded that this was probably not the way to go spend his time trying to compete with votes against uh, Hillary Clinton to do it at the APAC audience, that his best chances are with a, with very different kind of audience. In fact, he would probably show up at APAC's, uh, in some way, their their competitor, J Street, which has taken a very different, uh, different view of how Israel should handle the Israeli-Palestinian disputes. I agree with Yoki and David Sanger on this. Uh, it seems to me that we are overdue for a foreign policy column by Steve Walt on this subject, given the scandalous uh, piece he book he and John Mearsheimer wrote in which APAC had such an outsized influence. Um, I do think that APEC's inability to change the domestic American policy equation on the Iran deal uh, suggests that they certainly aren't either they were never as powerful as people thought they were or they are no longer as powerful as people thought they were. Um, but I also agree that it's a really important policy forum and a place where uh, political candidates need to like it's a gate you have to hit as you go on the slalom of American politics. I think what also was fascinating about this uh, is that Hillary Clinton used a speech at the Brookings Institution after the Iran deal was signed, but before it was approved, to stake out, I think, one of her most distinct policy differences with President Obama. She gave a very tough speech there, and parts of it she repeated at APAC, to basically make the case that while the Iran deal was the right deal to go do— you had to go in force against every single violation. And what's happened since that time is Iran has complied completely on the nuclear side and has completely ignored the mandates on the missile testing side and has sort of celebrated its ignoring of that. And um, she did that in the speech at APAC. I'll, I'll just read you a, a, a little piece of it because what I ask you to do with this is imagine for a minute that President Obama had given this talk. She said, um, our approach must be distrust and verify. It's a line she used at Brookings. This deal must come with vigorous enforcement, strong monitoring, clear consequences for any violations, and a broader strategy to confront Iran's aggression across the region. And then she described that aggression from Syria to Lebanon to Yemen and, and so forth. And it's an interesting question why it is that the Obama administration has been more reluctant until they had to go to the UN with, to protest the missile uh, launches just a few days uh, before this APAC convention, the Obama administration has sort of not taken the same view that, that she has. It's also interesting, one line that jumped out at me, uh, Cullum Lynch, one of our colleagues, had done a story last year. It was a very good scoop about how the White House was for the first time open to having the UN have a much more active role in trying to force a final settlement than previous administrations had been. And she specifically referenced that in her speech today. She specifically said not only the kind of usual talking point about no third party should have a role in this, but she specifically said, and not the United Nations Security Council, which was a fascinating breakpoint from the White House, which had explicitly had the very opposite point of view. Um, and that jumped out at me. It also jumped out, you know, David, you were quoting from part of it. She used some variant of the word neutral. I lost count after 12. And it was clearly directed at Donald Trump. This was an extraordinarily partisan speech. She never said the name Donald Trump, but every time she said neutral, she might have said, 
like Donald Trump, like Donald Trump, like Donald Trump, and made no attempt to hide it. And I, I found that just utterly fascinating that it was so open. And then she had this line. Tonight, because Trump was speaking after she did, you will hear a lot of overheated rhetoric from the other candidates about Iran, but there's a big difference between talking about holding Tehran accountable and actually doing it. That's an interesting position to take because at the same time, she was obviously the one who got the Iran talks going. So her whole difference that she's cut out is in how it's being enforced. I feel like this is going to be a difficult needle for Secretary Clinton to thread, because on the one hand, she is uh, campaigning on the basis that she is going to continue President Obama's foreign policies, and everything in the speech to AIPAC was about her differences with Obama administration policies and why she shouldn't be considered a continuation of Obama policies. It's a contradictory message. And whether it persuades people that what she is saying is the way to grade her or the policies she had as Secretary of State, which were not nearly as robust as the ones that she talked about in her speech at APEC today, or also her actual engagement as Secretary of State on these issues. I don't know that that's actually true, Corey. Mm -hmm. I think the reality is that uh, she's going to be running on her own foreign policy. There are notable differences between it and the policy of Barack Obama. She highlighted some of the differences she had with him as Secretary of State in the book that she wrote. She has highlighted some of those differences since then. Uh, not inconsequentially, other colleagues of hers in the administration, including Leon Panetta, David Petraeus, Chuck Hagel, and others, have similarly highlighted differences that they had with the president on these kind of issues. Um, and I don't think there's any contradiction. She will say, I was in the Obama administration. I served the president. I gave him my advice. Sometimes he took it. Sometimes he didn't. Um, and I was the hawk and the toughest one on Iran. Uh, and... You know, once you do get to a deal as a result of that toughness, how you enforce it is the critical issue. I was tougher with regard to Syria. I was tougher with regard to Libya. So I don't, you know, my sense is that's not really, you know, going to be the the, 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 the big issue uh, for her, big challenge for her. And you'll hear it on one other. Uh, my prediction is and uh, that you'll hear it on North Korea because... She sounded a lot tougher as senator on North Korea than she actually acted as secretary of state. Uh, and it'll be interesting to see how far she pushes that, that line. But if you think about the one, one area, there are many, but one thing in the world that could erupt during the campaign and then become a campaign issue, North Korea has got to be pretty high on that list right now. Well, it's, it is pretty high on the list, but I also, you know, I, I think that um, you know, she, she it, it, first of all, is helped by the fact that Barack Obama has on a regular basis thrown members of his cabinet under the bus, uh, most notably recently in the uh, Jeffrey Goldberg piece in The Atlantic, um, and so is seen as having a different view from the rest of his cabinet. And B, she's helped by the fact that the people she's likely to be running against have positions that are just ridiculous. Um, and that, you know, whatever issues of nuance you may raise with regard to her position, um, you know, you, you have a choice on the Republican side between the incompetence and irrationality of Donald Trump um, and the odiousness and, and uh, um, uh, you know, insupportable bluster of Ted Cruz. 
I think there's also an element of this that's sort of slightly more more personal and more human, although we usually don't think of people, especially Hillary in some ways, uh, in, in that frame. But when you talk to people around her, they all mention that she sort of bristles at the notion that John Kerry was the activist secretary of state, that John Kerry was this tireless guy negotiating the Iran deal, and John Kerry was trying to get the peace process restarted even though it didn't work. And she sort of bristles at the implicit criticism that she didn't do anything, that her secretary of stateship was relatively inconsequential. And I think a speech like this where she can say, hey, that whole Iran deal, I'll make sure it's enforced. I'll be much tougher. I'll be tougher on them and make sure, to use the phrase David referenced earlier, to distrust but verify. Some of it to me sounds like a reminder that and a pushback against the notion and the frame because Republicans are raising it too. Republicans say, sure, your resume is impressive on paper, but what did you actually do? And this is a way of saying it wasn't John Kerry who did everything. It wasn't like he was the kind of hero of, sec of the Secretary of State kind of handover. Brad did a lot too. And some of the flawed stuff shouldn't be on me. It's on John Kerry and it's on Barack Obama. But again, Oops. that's the contradiction, right? I got everything done, but none of the flaws are my responsibility. And just to but take the Palestinian negotiations example, right? Clinton actually didn't do that as Secretary of State. She she appointed uh, Mitchell, right, Senator Mitchell, to do that. So she had outsourced to another senior figure that element of our foreign policy. And many people believe that she did it for a very deliberate reason. She didn't think it would be terribly successful. If it was successful, she knew that it would anger a, a good part of the constituency that she was addressing at, at APAC. So it gave her a little bit of distance from it. So then John Kerry comes in, a man who's already run for president, is not likely to go do it again, and he engaged in it personally. Now, did it work? No. Uh, but it was a really fascinating look at the different ways you approach this if your presidential race is behind you or ahead of you. Okay, well, look, let's we'll, we'll stipulate that Republicans may try to run against Hillary Clinton's foreign policy record when she runs for president, and, 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 we, and we can have differing points of view as to whether or not that's a smart strategy. Um, let's go back to the issue of, of, of Israel. Prior to the APAC meeting, uh, there was further uh, bumptiousness in the relationship between Netanyahu and the White House with planned visits and saying they were going and not going and all this kind of thing. Um, that relationship seems to be just in the worst possible shape. Um, the president's got an upcoming GCC meeting um, where he's already, uh, you know, thrown a bunch of those countries uh, under the bus in the context of this uh, Jeffrey Goldberg article and particularly the Saudis as free riders and so forth. Not going to be very good. Um, uh, things are going particularly badly in Iraq at the moment. Uh, the Assad regime seems to be making, taking advantage of this ceasefire um, in Syria. Um, does, does 2016 look like a year of, of, of further deterioration uh, in U.S. relations in the Middle East to you guys? It's interesting that the right after the uh, canceled Netanyahu visit, where first the Netanyahu aides leaked out that they canceled it because the White House wouldn't invite them, and then the White House pushed back, and then the Netanyahu guys pulled back, was a trip that was announced and took place as scheduled, which was Netanyahu going to Russia to see Vladimir Putin. And that's been the drumbeat of his trips. His trips have not been to the U.S. They've been to Moscow for the Gulf. When the Gulf leaders have tried to get some sense of what's happening with the ISIS fight with Iran, they go to Moscow. And it's fascinating. President Obama in the Goldberg interview, the part that jumped out to me the most was, to my mind, the vaguely delusional is too strong, but 
this belief that Vladimir Putin is weak and irrelevant and he stumbled into conflicts that he'll never be able to extricate himself from. Flash forward, Vladimir Putin withdraws from Syria. Arguably, you could say that he accomplished his goals at very minimal cost, few casualties. The estimate is about half a billion dollars spent. And he turned completely changed the battlefield dynamic in Syria. And if you look at the cliche about voting with their feet, leaders from Netanyahu to the Saudis to the Emiratis, they're voting with their feet because they're going to Moscow and not to Washington. Interesting uh, point, Corey. I agree with everything Yoki just said. Moreover, I believe you, fearless editor, uh, were the one that several months ago pointed out that uh, President Obama has managed what was heretofore impossible for American leaders, which was to unify Israel, the Gulf states, and others across the Middle East in thinking that our policy is completely ineffectual. It's quite possible I said that because I think that's actually true. Um, and uh, I also think that the the empowerment of the Russians and the empowerment of the Iranians uh, continues. Uh, and I think the marginalization of some of these other issues also continues. Is that your view, David? Uh, it, pretty much uh, it is. I and mean, if you think about what we learned and what we just sort of confirmed in Jeff Goldberg's fascinating uh, set of interviews with the president, um, the first thing we learned was that he believes you don't enter into a conflict where you can't see your way out and where you can't really see that you've made a lasting difference. So what did Putin do? He got into something from the air only. And whether he made a lasting difference, we don't know. But as uh, Yoki pointed out before, he certainly changed the balance of power for a while. And he helped solidify Assad's uh, rule. And certainly we can think that, that Assad's chances of um, surviving beyond uh, the Obama presidency, assuming he doesn't uh, run into some uh, sudden other difficulty, uh, are probably pretty good at this point. And he has Putin to thank because a year ago it looked like Assad was really back on his heels. Um, I think the second— uh, let me just dive, sure. dive in there. I, I find one of the things that is kind of most interesting, uh, and again, we keep going back to this interview because it's the most recent deep dive into the president's brain, but is, you know, he describes himself as a realist. And yet his policy approach is, unless there's a perfect outcome, I'm not going to take any action or very, something very close to that. Now, that doesn't sound very realistic to me. You know, the, the Putin approach of, well, you know, it's a messy situation. I'm going to go in for a while. I'm going to move the needle in my direction as far as I can, and hopefully that'll help. That seems like realism to me. You can be realistic, David, and still be so risk-averse that you don't want to take the, take the chance. And I think that, you know, he saw the picture in a pretty realistic way. And, you know, even what he said about the Saudis— you know, the only shock is that he said it on the record. It's not a shock that he thought that the Saudis uh, weren't exactly carrying their weight here. Um, I think what what's fascinating about President Obama is that after um, eight years of a president who, for whom our critiques are mostly about acts of commission, you've got a president where our critiques at the end of his eight years are pretty much going to be about acts of omission. And I think the, the, the bigger question is, which presidential candidate 
has the likelihood of catching the pendulum in the middle instead of doing it out at the extremes. I think that's a really interesting point. But I agree with David Rothkopf that the president's not a realist. It's not that he gets realism as an approach to stuff and he he made a shrewd calculation about risk. It's that the president doesn't seem to understand how to use military force effectively or to credit others like Putin in the Syria case with shrewd and effective limited uses of military force. And that's so fundamental to being a realist that the fact that the president, you know, just to take the example of Afghanistan, that he would announce a surge of troops, uh, announce that there was going to be a civilian surge that never materializes, and also simultaneously announce the end date of that, completely unconnected with achieving his goals, was an early indicator that he just doesn't understand how to use military force effectively because he is so timid um, about from the experience of Iraq and Afghanistan in the Bush administration. Yeah, I think, Corey, I, I, it's a fascinating point. I, I would just tweak it slightly. Uh, what came through in the interview and it's come through before was the degree to which he bears grudges, right? So the blow up on the White House where Netanyahu was lecturing him about the Six-Day War and he felt lectured to, he still brings it up X number of years later. And when he talks about the military, he still brings up the Afghan surge debate where he felt like the military and, and all – he uses this phrase, his aides use this phrase, that they boxed him in. And so there's the discomfort, and I agree with you about the use of military force, but then there's the discomfort with just the institution of the military and a belief that generals at the beginning of his presidency gave him inaccurate advice. They pushed him to do something he didn't want to do. And when he – you know, we all remember this, but he explicitly said, I don't want to do counterinsurgency. I want to do counterterror. It was less than three days later that you had some of those same generals up on the Hill who said, we're doing counterinsurgency. And he still bears that grudge. He still bears that scar that he can't trust the Pentagon. I agree with you on all of that, Yucky. What the president and the people around him in the White House don't take responsibility for, though, is that the guidance they were giving the military about what to achieve in Afghanistan required a magnitude of forces and an approach indistinguishable from counterinsurgency. So the problem wasn't that the military was refusing to give the president options consistent with their political guidance. It was that the White House was giving political guidance that they then didn't like the resourcing of and were trying to manipulate the military into not giving their straightforward military advice. The, the most obvious example is Jim Jones going to Afghanistan and saying, don't ask for more forces. The president's not going to give them to you. You know what they don't accept responsibility for? Anything. I see <laughs> you the Afghan, argument, David. That Afghan review took almost 11 months. It actually started during the transition. The president had countless opportunities to review uh, proposals from the militaries, a substantiation for the proposals. And in fact, they reviewed them ad nauseum. And the president kept sending them back to the drawing board. And they kept tweaking it. They even tweaked it after they reached an agreement. You know, they, they tweaked it in the speech. That's when they added in the exit from, from Afghanistan. The whole process was controlled by the White House. The White House, therefore, has to accept responsibility for it. And it is astonishing to me the degree to which the president and his team can find scapegoats within their own administration for the policies that they approved and implemented that didn't go their way. It's just, you know, it's not 
grown up. It's not the way the world works. And if you're the president of the United States, the military works for you. You're the commander in chief. So to say that they somehow, you know, euchred you into doing something you didn't want to do is not a reflection on them. It's a reflection on you as commander in chief. David, I would agree with everything you have to say, but my only surprise is that you're surprised here. Let's go back to um, the Bush administration for a moment with all due respect to my great friend Corey here who uh, served in it. But you do remember that in the uh, congressional, uh, the midterm elections in 2006, President Bush went from one event to the next saying, we are winning in Iraq. We are winning in Iraq. We are winning in Iraq. And the day after the election, he fired Donald Rumsfeld because he had known for more than a year that we were not winning in Iraq. And then got his way to the surge, which I think everybody agrees was probably the one most successful element of of his um, Iraq strategy. And the one on which that President Obama, you know, asked Petraeus a lot about as he was coming together on the Afghan review that you referred to before. So there's nothing particularly surprising here about an administration maintaining in, for far longer than it should that its strategy was working. And in fact, in the Obama case, the acceptance of the fact that it has been working is that we've now had to put marginally more troops, mostly special forces, into both Iraq and Afghanistan. What surprises me about all of this is that no one has yet commented on David's use of the word euchred. Thank you. David, could you define that for our listeners and a couple of your panelists? Yeah, Bob Euchre was a catcher in the major league. <laughs> Yucky, I'm surprised you didn't pick up on that. Oh, I, I was there. I was waiting for Bob Euchre's, my favorite line of his of all time, about how he was a terrible hitter. And he would talk about how hard it was to be as bad a hitter at he, as he was because he would say the law of averages meant a bat would hit a ball at least sometime that he never did. <laughs> He's an, an American treasure. He's an American treasure. Exactly. And about the only outlier below the Mendoza line. Nicely played. Nicely wow. Played. Wow. Really, this is... You know, this is why this particular podcast is a national treasure, um, uh, because you guys— Because we so rarely connect with the ball? <laughs> we euchre? You, you guys all operate below the Mendoza line. <laughs> I'd like to circle back to the Israel issue in this, though, which is where we, where we started. The president is done with this. It's now going to get left to the next— administration to deal with this. Do we really think that there is a likely difference in how a GOP administration, Trump or, or Cruz or other, might handle these policies compared to a Hillary Clinton administration? Yes. First of all, I don't think anybody should have any confidence. They know what Trump would do. My only solace in the prospect of a Trump administration is the genius of the founding fathers in building checks and balances into the system. Would you serve in a Trump were... administration? Court? No, I would not. I'm one of the signatories of the letter saying this would be a disaster for the country and and that I wouldn't vote for him and I wouldn't work for him. 
If you get a Clinton administration, there will be a huge sigh of relief, and not just among America's allies in the Middle East, that they're going to get, right, a Jake Sullivan-esque, calm, professional, predictable uh, American foreign policy. And just about everybody of America's friends and maybe even some of America's enemies around the world would like uh, greater predictability from us. I mean, I don't think any president, whether it's President Bernie Sanders, whether it's President John Kasich, President Hillary Clinton, President Donald Trump, nobody wants to touch this. I mean, the Hillary speech at APAC, the very end, she snuck in a couple of lines about how we have to move to a two-state solution to protect Israel's character as a Jewish and democratic state. But it was... 90 seconds in a 35 or 40 minute speech. She wants no part of this. No one looks at the current leadership of Israel or Palestine and says, yep, these two guys are ready for a deal if we just had more active American involvement. Actually, uh, now that you've raised that, Yoki, there does seem to be one possible continuity in a in a potential Trump administration, which is that he likes authoritarian strongmen. And maybe in a weird way, that provides the basis for a better relationship with Netanyahu. Wow, she went to the Trump-Netanyahu comparison. Um, I didn't make a Trump-Netanyahu comparison, but I do think that Trump would admire the strength with which Netanyahu perseveres despite unpopularity, and finds new options for himself with the Russians or others when we prove unreliable. So well, here's they, what will be they, fascinating they, to watch. They do we, have in common, you know, kind of uh, uh, racist of tendencies and a dependency on walls. I would like the record to reflect that it was David who made the Netanyahu-Trump comparison, not me. I think one of the real interesting questions as the race gets further on, assuming that Trump uh, gets the nomination— is to listen closely to Netanyahu himself. Because in the last election cycle, he made it pretty clear that Mitt Romney was his man. Now, they had a relationship that went back to when they were both in the States together and and working together. But clearly, he saw his opportunity there to um, try to dig in at President Obama, with whom there was no love lost. and, And that relationship has only gotten worse since. So the big question, to my mind, is, is Netanyahu persuaded that Hillary Clinton is actually his better bet here? And I don't, I, I don't pretend to be able to predict where he's going to come out on that. I think that's a fascinating question and, and a related one slightly. Sheldon Adelson, the multi-billionaire, gazillionaire donor who had talked about the hundreds of millions of dollars he's willing to give to this campaign, he has a newspaper in Israel called Israel Hayom, which means basically Israel Today. It's a free newspaper. It's been jokingly called Bibi's Pravda because every day is sort of pro-Netanyahu stories, photos of Netanyahu looking manly and tough and Putin-esque. You know who's on that right now almost as much as Bibi is Donald Trump. Hmm. There was a spate last week where Donald Trump was on the front page of Israel Hayom every day. And so the presumption within Israel is Sheldon Adelson believes Donald Trump, which is then raises that weird question that goes back to the point David Sanger made, which is fascinating, of if Sheldon Adelson prefers Trump, and Sheldon Adelson is Bibi's biggest supporter here. Does that tell you anything about where Bibi is? That is an interesting question. You know, I think I had a conversation with somebody else from the region not too long ago. And the f- focus of the conversation was, you know, everybody was like, well, only seven, eight months to go. And then we're, you know, done with Obama and we'll go back to normal policy. And then Trump came along. And they're like, holy mackerel. We have to deal with another four years or eight years of 
unpredictability and not knowing, you know, who's who's who in America and who's on what side. But the, I, I really want to understand this. Do we really? Th I mean, Trump made this idiotic comment that he was his own foreign policy advisor. Well, I think it was a truthful um, comment, David. Can well, you name any other? <laughs> Idiotic I, I and truthful are not contradictory. <laughs> yeah, no. In that particular case, they're not. They're 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 they confirm each other. But but the, but but this is a question. Ultimately, he becomes president. He's got to hire somebody to be his advisors. He's, you know, he can't do the job alone. You got to hire people. Don't you end up going back to the well and hiring the same kind of foreign policy people and you know for better or for worse that that impacting things it'll be interesting to see my my suspicion is that a whole bunch of people will be able to persuade themselves to work in a trump administration on the argument that it would be worse if i didn't and it's important for the country and maybe i can influence him um, wasn't there something yesterday where richard haas didn't rule it out from the cfr uh, Richard was, I think, on uh, the Fareed Zakaria uh, GPS show on CNN, and um, he just said, it's way too early. We don't even know who the nominees are and, and so forth. But I think Corey raises a really interesting question. So here you've got a group of people from the Republican establishment who have been out of office for eight years and have strong opinions about what's happened to the world in those eight years. And then if assuming Donald Trump got elected, which I think most of us on this panel think is probably still a somewhat remote possibility, but assuming for a moment that it happened, the interesting question is how many of them are going to be able to stick with their objections or convince themselves that they're like the last savior. They're the thing that throwing their body between Donald Trump and policies around the world would make a big difference. And Boy, you're going to learn a lot about people as they make that call either way. Can I put my money preemptively on uh, arrogance and perceived self-interest <laughs> winning, winning out for people as they, as they win that choice? As, as the official um, bookmaker of uh, the ER, you, you may certainly not only put your money on it, but you could even set the odds if you like. In that case, Secretary of State Corey Shockey, it is a pleasure <laughs> preemptively to— Nominated, I will not run. Corey is a, actually it's a is a poor example here because she lives most of her life at Stanford, so you would have to actually convince her to come back to dreary and snowy Washington, in addition to uh, all of the other moral considerations. <laughs> I thank you for acknowledging that there would be moral considerations <laughs> and not merely uh, quality of life considerations. Yeah, see, in my case, it's just pure quality of life. If I were offered Secretary of State or you know, a groundskeeper job at Stanford, I would definitely opt for the Stanford job. <laughs> anyway, well, look, you know, this is once again one of these natural places for us to bring this discussion to a close. I want to thank you guys for joining us here on the ER. I hope you join us again soon, and I, I, I hope that uh, our listeners do the same. It's been uh, fascinating and disturbing, and um, I, I trust that everybody's going to now go and drink heavily as they do after every such episode. Thank you. You have been listening to Foreign Policies, the ER podcast. I'm David Rothkoff, and I've been your host. The program is produced by Maria Ori and Ann Kingston. For more information about FP and to subscribe, please visit foreignpolicy.com. 
and thank you very much for joining us.